0: Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast, I'm Mark Brumley, I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at Ignatius.com. Hi, I'm Mark Brumley of Ignatius Press, I'm here with Father Joseph Fessio, founder and editor of Ignatius Press, and our topic today dear friends is the re- beauty and reverence reverence and beauty in the liturgy folks will be aware of the fact that uh, pope francis issued a motu proprio recently in which he severely restricted the celebration of the so-called traditional latin mass that's created uh, something of an uproar and so we thought it would be opportune to talk with father fessio about the sacred liturgy uh we also posted his Uh, I think, famous article on the Mass of Vatican II at Catholic World Report. People uh, would be, I think, uh, enlightened if they would go and read that at Catholic World Report. But uh, using this as a point of departure to talk about the subject of reverence and beauty in the liturgy, Father Fessio. So I'd like to begin with asking you about how you celebrate the Mass and why you celebrate it that way.
1: All right, well... Let's take those two ideas of reverence and beauty. I don't think beauty is subjective, but I do think that uh, the mass in the ordinary form or extraordinary form can be celebrated in beautifully surroundings and beautifully. But I want to look upon reverence, and I think there's there's objective reverence that is that can be a celebration which has of its part of its features that it it. Uh, evokes or evinces a sense of the sacred, and therefore leads to the people participating as being more reverent. There's also this objective part that I remember as a high school student going to a morning mass regularly at the convent nearby, where the, at that time, the, what's now the extraordinary forum was celebrated in 12 minutes. And it was not reverent, Uh, but it was the mass and the graces were there. I also have seen and participated in uh, ordinary form, the Novus Ordo Masses, celebrated with great reverence. Uh, so, but wh- I want to ask the question: You know, what are the features of the extraordinary form, the Missal nineteen sixty two, which would lend to a more reverent celebration and participation?
0: Wow, and- uh, that's a great question. I'm glad you're asking it
1: okay when well, you can interrupt me at any time uh and i'll interrupt you at any time if necessary but uh one thing was of course the the old mass of no vetus or the old order uh, was all in latin and latin is a sacred language in the sense not only that it's uh mysterious to us because most people don't understand it too well but even when it was first you know, in Latin in the 3rd or 4th century, it wasn't street Latin. It was a very hierarchical, hieratic Latin. So that already, I think, gives us a sense of the ineffability of God, the unspeakability of God. Uh, Also, it was clearly directed to God. I mean, the priest faced East, faced with the people, faced the Lord. Even for the first part of the Mass, reading the Epistle and the Gospel, you know, facing the apse, facing the crucifix, facing east. And so that, it was clearly a sense that this was not between you and the priest, between the priest and God, and you with the priest. So that was another thing. Uh, a third element, seems to me, is that it was more clearly hierarchical. Uh, it wasn't flattened out democratically, but you had an altar rail, you had a sanctuary, sanctuary the very word means a place is holy, a place is set apart, and you had the nave. Now this is a ship. It's where the where the lady were, and so you had this clear distinction between the Christ the Head and Bridegroom, and Christ the Bride. You know, Christ the people. Uh, so that I think was an inducement to reverence. Also, you had a more clear connection to the past because you know you knew that when you're at Mass, you were participating at the Mass that. Augustine celebrated and Thomas Aquinas celebrated and Curia of Ars celebrated and St. Bonaventure. I mean, this was the Mass of maybe 1500 years of the church. And that lends to a sense of awe. And finally, the music, uh, when there was music at the extraordinary form of the old Mass, was generally Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant has an intrinsic quality of, you know, leading one to a sense of mystery and awe. So all those things, I think, were uh, characteristics and are characteristics of the extraordinary form, which make it objectively a more reverent celebration. Uh, and therefore also easier for a priest subjectively by just entering into it to be more reverent. However, uh, I believe that there were also deficiencies in the extraordinary form as it came down to us in the 60s fifties and sixties. One of them uh, was that everything took place at the altar. There was no distinction between ambo and altar. And therefore no distinction between the first part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word, and the second part of the Mass, Liturgy of the Eucharist. In fact, as you probably know although you're a young man, Mark, uh, when the question was asked, well when do I have to get to Mass to make it to fulfill my obligation? Well, after the offertory. That is to say, if you're there for the sacrifice, that's enough. You don't have to have the teaching or the gospel to the epistle. Well, that may have been a decent decision from a casuistic point of view, from moral theology. But I don't think it really expresses the full meaning of the Mass. The Mass is the two tables, the Word and the sacrifice. And in the Masses that came down to us after Trent, those were kind of conflated, and I think that was a deficiency, which I believe was corrected by the Council. And Pope Benedict, then Carlo Ratzker, made very clear that he thought that was a very positive result of the Council, that we distinguished between the Liturgy of the Word, which is more didactic, and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, which is more sacrificial and mysterial. Secondly, uh, there were a lot of accretions. I mean, over time, think, here's my example for that, my, my analogy for that. When I was at Auburn University, we used to have a rosary with the students every night. They're the ones that initiated initiated. who had the rosary. Well, then all of a sudden, somebody would add the St. Dominic's Prayer at the end. Okay, we'll add that prayer. And then someone else wanted to add a litany at the end. And pretty soon, we had St. Dominic's Prayer, the litany, and some other things. Wait a second. I'm just here to say the rosary. Can we just say the rosary? Well, that happened to the Mass as well. I mean, the the prayers at the foot of the altar, which are very beautiful in, in part, Uh, nevertheless, were meant to be said in the sacristy by the priest before he came out. It wasn't for the whole people there. But worst of all, in my view, is the last gospel. I love the last gospel. John chapter 1. It's great. But that was a devotional thing said after mass by the priest. And it's very weird in extraordinary form that, you know, the priest says, the mass is in and go in peace. And then he goes over and reads the last gospel. What the heck is that? We've already dismissed everybody. So there was that in a final deficiency, which is actually kind of a accumulation of things in the past, was that uh, because over time we had more and more saints, we had more feast days, more commemorations, and often there was no proper text for those those saints. So we went to the common, the commoner versions, the commoner pastors, and so on. So that if you went to daily mass, you'd have the same readings again and again and again. There was very little. Uh, diversity on, that's a bad word, <laughs> uh, Variation! Jim, <laughs> to days, but I mean, the, the, the selection of scriptural text was really uh, diminished, you know, uh, restricted. So, I, I think those were deficiencies in the Mass prior to the Vatican Council. What happened to the Council? Well, uh, I could go into this at great length, but just to summarize, there was a thing called the liturgical movement, capital L, capital M, liturgical movement. It really began in the middle of 19th century.
0: Go ahead. So, just just so context, this is going to sound seem like a silly question to you, but there are a lot of people out there that don't. You're going to talk about the liturgical movement and 19th century and all of that. Second Vatican Council, 1962 to 65. So, just so that everybody right. is following when we're talking about, because that's now half all a right. century ago.
1: Okay. So, uh, in the mid-19th century, uh, Dom Prosper-Gueranger uh, restored the Dominican mon- the Benedictine monastery at Salem, which had been destroyed by the French Revolution, and made it a center of a renewal of Gregorian chant. And so Salem is, to, to this day, sort of the, the gold standard, if you will, for Gregorian chant. Uh, and that was bringing back an ancient tradition Uh, that goes back all the way to the Jews. Uh, That he wrote a lot, and then that was sort of the ignition, if you will, of this great interest in the liturgy. And in 1903, uh, we had a new pope, Pope Pius X, and very soon, almost three months after his inauguration as pope, uh, coronation, whatever you call it, uh, he wrote his uh, letter Tra le solicitudine among the concerns, and that was the first time in a papal document we got the expression active participation. Well, it turns out that that document was actually a revision of a document he written as Patriarch of Venice 10 years earlier, which had been drafted by a Jesuit with a wonderful name of Angel de Santis, Angel of the Saints, <laughs> in which uh, Pope. Pius X, whose motto was, instaurare omnia in Christo, to restore all things in Christ, he, he was very interested in the renewal. But in 1913, he issued a, another document saying, we're going to study this now for 30 years. It's too important to make quick changes, so we're not going to have any changes to the liturgy for 30 years. Well, of course, that was 1943 it wasn't the best year for liturgical reflection because World War II was raging. But uh, over that time, there were synods, there were conferences, there were groups of pastors and theologians and ecclesiastics meeting. And so they actually, uh, from 1947 until 1951, uh, after... Pius XII. They said, "Now let's take this with issue again." They actually developed uh, a whole plan uh, for the reform of the Roman liturgy, and it's actually in a book I found. Uh, not a book; it's kind of a document, but it's 250 pages long. And there's only two pages in there on the Mass. The first half is on reforming the Sanctal cycle. That is. You know, weeding out some of the saints which no one knew about it anymore, and the second half was on the on the divine office, but only two pages on the mass itself. But in any event, there were several you know recommendations for a renewal in continuity tradition of the liturgy of the mass, and that's one reason why when the council began in 62, uh, the first two documents they issued the following year were on communications and liturgy, why liturgy? Because all the work had been done. So, I- uh,
0: yeah. And that's I, kind of in contrast to a lot of the other conciliar documents where the the schemas were redone by the bishops, but Sacrosanctalium was more or less ready to go.
1: That's right, it was, because so much good work had been done by so many, you know, really traditional and, and, and competent scholars. So, I mentioned the features of the extraordinary form, the Mass 60, of sixty-two missile, which led to a more reverent celebration of Mass that which actually had kind of embodied a more objective reverence. But let me go over what the Council actually said about the renewal. What about the fact that the old Mass is all in Latin? You can say the new Mass all in Latin. It, it's permitted.
0: Fact, By the those- way, this is this is one of the reasons why I get a little annoyed. I know you do when people refer to the Latin Mass. Yeah. Know? Which Latin Mass you mean? As if, as if the 62 Missal is the only form in which you can say Mass in Latin. Exactly. In now,
1: the Latin, the Novus Or, the Latin is still the official primary text of the Church's Mass. Now, I, I think that it was good that the Council said the vernacular, in our case English, may be used in some circumstances, especially when it comes to the readings. Well, why that? because that's the didactic part of the Mass. That's the part where the priest should face the people. The priest at that point in the Mass is representing God speaking to the people. And therefore, uh, it makes sense for the first part of the Mass that the priest face the people, that when they have the psalm response, it's antiphonal, they go back and forth, you know, between the priest or the reader, the lector and and the the faithful, Uh, but, Uh, the Latin in the sacrificial, more mysterial part of the Mass can be retained. And that's what I do when I celebrate Mass in the Novus Ordo. I have the ordinary parts, that is the parts that don't change every day, that's in Latin because people can learn that pretty easily. The parts that change every day, like the readings or the preface or the colic, the prayer, that's in English because it's harder for people to follow that, you know, uh, and it's more something which they're taking part in in a more direct way Uh, as far as the direction towards God there is no prohibition I mean canonically no prohibition or liturgically against celebrating mass facing the Lord facing East facing the rising Sun which is what I do so for me the drama is the first part of the mass I'm representing God to the people I proclaim the gospel I give a homily brilliant homily usually uh, sometimes I, I miss uh, <laughs> you uh, usually and, you
0: get homilies and they're usually very good so
1: and then but then the people bring the offerings up and I turn to face Lord with them now I'm representing them I'm facing God and we have mass facing east facing the Lord and then of course after the consecration when the bread and wine become the bottom right of Christ I turn back as Christ the bridegroom facing the bride And it's communion, which is the high point of Mass. It should be the high point of Mass. We're united with our Bridegroom. So, to me, you can have all the uh, objective reverence of the ancient Mass uh, with the Novus Ordo. Thirdly, hierarchical. I mean, there's no reason you can't have an altar rail. Whether people receive standing, kneeling, on the tongue, in the mouth, that separates the sanctuary set apart for the priest and the the assistants who should be vested. That's also uh, a distinction, you know, from merely ordinary clothes and so on. Uh, And you can do that today, and I do that myself. Uh, As far as connection with the past, the Council said nothing in renewal about adding canons to the Mass. Now, there's value to those canons, but Canon Two is the one most frequently used. Not why? Because it's the shortest. Uh, it has no ancient history. They say it's a Canon of Apollonius, but that was an outline he made back in the year two or three hundred. Uh, it's not an organic growth to go back to take something which is six hundred years dead and regraft it, you know, on something which is alive. Uh, but so. With the Novus Ordo, a priest may always celebrate, and I believe should always celebrate, with the Eucharistic Prayer One, the Roman Canon. It's a beautiful Canon. I think is objectively the best of the, of all the ones we have. But the point is, you can and may use that that Canon. And finally, Gregorian chant. Obviously, that can be done. So, uh, I believe that the the Novus Ordo, the Mass of Paul VI, the ordinary form, can be celebrated in tremendous continuity with the extraordinary form, with the Mass of, uh, you know, Pius V. Uh, and that's what I try to do. I'm 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 a California, I'm, I'm a cowboy. Okay, I'm, I'm not very formal. <laughs> things I don't wear. I don't wear cufflinks. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but I think the I mass- can confirm that. <laughs> yeah, the mass itself uh, is, I think, the novus ordo can be objectively something which is experienced as in continuity with the prior mass, and that's what I think Benedict tried to do so beautifully in his pontificate. as also John Paul II but in the more appropriate Pope Benedict, what he was trying to what he tried to aim at, and he said so, was an integration of of the values of both the extraordinary form and the ordinary form. This new one is is really kind of amputating the extraordinary form. It's trying to. And I think that's a mistake. Although I don't think the deepest mind of the church is a return in great numbers to the extraordinary form. Beautiful as that is, and I think it has a place and I'm opposed to, you know, prohibiting it but I would much rather see the ordinary form celebrated in a way that is clear continuity with extraordinary form.
0: Well, you've said a lot there, Father. I uh, did. You know, of course, uh, I attend your mass, you know, when you celebrate mass for the whole community there at, at uh, Ignatius Press, and, and uh, I have a lot of experience at that mass, and I really love the way you celebrate the mass. And you've given a what I think is a very good rationale for doing it that way but people are going to object well that may be the way Father Fessio says the Novus Ordo or the ordinary form but you know uh, when I go to my parish I experience something different isn't the problem then that we have a form of the mass that has so much so many options so much variation that while indeed you can celebrate it the way Father Fessio does many priests don't do it that way and so don't we need something more like the extraordinary form where everything is pretty much uh, nailed down and there's not a lot of room for variation. Well,
1: that's a good point. And uh, that was what allows me to do. What I do is precisely the fact that the Novus Ordo has all these options and I always choose the option, which is most in continuity with the previous form of mass, but you're right. It, it, it talk about clericalism. Now, every priest, Gets to impose upon his congregation, his choices, right? You know, for the options. Now, I, I don't, know, I don't know what the solution is. That except perhaps what Good Archbishop Corleone had in mind many years ago when he was still an auxiliary bishop of San Diego, what he called the mass conversions. I believe there should be one form of mass with very few options. I mean, you have an option for the simple mass, you know, a ferial day, you know, regular day, or a feast day or a solemnity. You know that those can change there, but I don't think we should have all these options. Does that really make the mass more relevant? You know that you can choose these different options. I don't think so.
0: I think one within of the-, the range of the within even within the range of the options, there's there's also sort of the spirit <laughs> spirit of the liturgy, the spirit in which it, which these options are chosen. Uh, I think a, a, a priest committed to a reverent, obedient offering of the holy mass even with the range of options uh, is still going to come out uh, doing something that is, at least in broad strokes, in keeping with the spirit of the council in the proper sense. It's when you get into this idea that the priest can make up prayers and add and subtract things and do all kinds of other things that then you're, you're way out in outer space and perhaps, you know, following the council, I mean, following the 1970 missile. the idea of having the options and maybe a, a, an overreaction to the pre-Vatican II liturgy and just bad formation of priests led them to this sort of experimental do it as you like, do it as you please attitude. I don't know.
1: Well, okay, well, as far as choices which are not the pr- permitted options, yeah, exclude all those, but even if we take the options that are permitted, uh, you know, why is Canon Two the most frequently, as far as I can tell, used Canon? Is it because people decided that's the most profound? You know, that's the most objectively beautiful. No, it's the shortest.
0: Just because it's the shortest. Yeah, that's but right.
1: but then you have you know you got to kiss a piece for the last ten minutes, <laughs> and, which which by the way is optional. You don't have to do that. Although you think, it seems like it's the most important part of the math for some people. But and then you got the announcements. You got this and that. Well, right. you know, why not have at the central sacrificial part of the Mass the most beautiful canon there is, and the one that all your predecessors, you know, participated right. in. You know, so I myself, even though Cardinal Rinson and I would disagree on this, he's a good man, he's a great man. I mean, I, I would just get rid of this other canon. They were not voted by the Council. I mean, Vagaggini wrote a book between the uh, Council in 1969, which is when the new Mass was promulgated, and I, I was shy, I realized what they were doing. What he said was, well, and Vagagini, always oh, it an Italian name, he was in Belgium, and in French-speaking Belgium, he kind of had the French, uh, uh, the Cartesian frame of mind. He said, well, you know, the, the, uh, the Roman canon is not really rational. I mean, the way they ordered. We, we need to make this more rational. I thought, you know, it's like you grew up in a house and your, your great-grandfather added a garage and your grandfather added you know, expanded the kitchen. Your grandmother, you know, put on a bedroom or something like that. And so the house is not, it's not the same thing as you built from scratch. It's not rational in that way, but it's your house. It has a history. And so he wanted to, you know, make the canon more rational. And so what do you do? He and Father Bouillet created Canon 3, which has no basis in tradition except this part, that part, this part, that part. And Father Bouillet, God bless him, great man of the church, would never celebrate the third canon. He says, why? I said, why? Because I upright it. He didn't want to celebrate a canon. He upright. So yeah, maybe I take a hard line on this, but I would say, get rid of these options we don't need all these options point of ritual is something which does not change in the midst of a life you know a culture which everything's got to change what's newer is always good we need an anchor and I think that's why a lot of people go back to the extraordinary form it's an anchor they know it's gonna be everywhere in the world every time it's celebrated, they know it's gonna be there I think we can do something like that with the Novus Ordo and incorporate all of the good change oh by the way I mean to me the, the two best changes after the council are one I mentioned already, the distinction between Liturgy of the Word and Liturgy of the Eucharist, but more importantly even was the scripture selections. I mean, now, I mean, you go through large, large swaths of the Bible, especially if you go to daily Mass. And I think that's a tremendous uh, improvement over what happened before the council.
0: You, you touched on a little bit of why, why you think people are attracted to the, to the ordinary form, but it, it's not just an attraction to, excuse, me, the extraordinary form. It's not just an attraction to the older form of mass. There's a whole uh, superstructure to this movement and it, it's bound up with a certain attitude towards the Second Vatican Council, to the post, uh, to the, uh, Paul the sixth, John Paul II, Benedict the the post-conciliar popes and the post-conciliar magisterium. What's going on there that that there is this movement? And in fact, I'm going to let you answer the question in a moment, but, you know, Pope Francis touches on this in his motu proprio as uh, at least the rationale that he gives for why he's kind of putting the the clamp down or the lockdown on the extraordinary form. So what what do you think is going on with all of that?
1: Well, I mean, I think that we have lived uh, in a, time, a very rapid change, and also the rejection of many, much of the past, and much of which was valuable, which is part of a long inherited tradition. And so, when people see what happened after the council, they begin to suspect the council. Now, if you read the documents, especially the key four documents, on liturgy, on scripture, on the church, on the church in the modern world... You see that those documents are extraordinarily well done. I mean, the spirit is there. However, there are ambiguities in some of them, and I think willful ambiguities, which were exploited after the council, and because of what was happen- the way the council was implemented, uh, people began to reject the council. And I would say, do what Pope Benedict and John Paul II both said: go back and reread the council. In the light of tradition, and that's how you interpret it, and so because of this reasonable, it seems to me, skepticism on the part of many good, devout people, uh, they now are t- they're you know they're tempted to reject the council itself and to uh, reject the popes who support the council, and that's unfortunate. And because of social media, the internet, and so on, you get a few voices which are echoed widely, and I'm not going to mention names, but uh, it undermines confidence in the Holy Spirit and in the church herself. So that it's a problem. It's a problem. And so, Mark, as I've said so often, it's so hard being a moderate. Uh, You know, I neither, you know, accept the Novus Ordo as normally celebrated, nor do I want to go back to the extraordinary form. And so I'm lonely. But I'm happy. Uh, you, you know, we. I see your mouth moving, but I don't hear.
0: Go ahead. You, you, you overwhelmed me again. Right. I said you're the, you're the man in the middle, uh, always walking the moderate path. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to talk about this. i I'd, I'd love to come back. Maybe we'll come back and have a session where we talk about uh, resource month theology, communal theology, and and the mission of Ignatius Press, because I think it's actually bound up with what you're talking about with respect to the liturgy. But um, it's really great to, to be able to be on this side sort of interviewing you and, and having people be able to get a glimpse into what we get to participate in uh, when we go to Mass at Ignatius Press. So thanks very much.
1: One last word, Mark. I believe that the book by Colonel of The Spirit of Liturgy, is the greatest book ever written on the Mass. And uh, everybody should should read that book carefully. It really expresses the wisdom of
0: the ages by a holy man. Well, they can go to Ignatius.com and get their copy of that. And they can also go to Catholic World Report online and get a copy of your article, The Mass of Vatican II, where you explain what the Council actually envisioned for for the reform of the Mass and, and how you think that the Novus Ordo Mass ought to be celebrated in in consistency with that, going into more detail than than what you're able to do in the time with us here today. Thanks, Father. You're welcome, Mark. God bless you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.